0: So I got out to the car, and um, my husband was opening the door for me. And I said, you know, Rick, I'm a feminist. In fact, I'm a radical feminist because I'm an English teacher, you know. I know that radical means at the roots. And I knew that at the roots of my soul I'd been changed that night that I would never be the same. I could never return.
1: You must remember that when the Constitution was written that women were regarded as property, the struggle
0: for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA.
1: Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So
2: as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never.
3: If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. (laughs) 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 Yesterday, all these years later, Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, making it the 38th state to do so. That means three quarters
0: of
4: all states have ratified, as the Constitution requires. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment, and this is Ordinary Equality. We talked last episode about why the Equal Rights Amendment is important in real concrete terms. And we're not the only ones who think that. Even in the 1970s, the majority of Americans believed in it. The majority of people in both major political parties. Today, we're talking about how that high approval level led to the amendment's victorious passage. Well, almost. As a quick reminder, the ERA was written well before it was finally passed by Congress in 1972. As discussed in Episode 3, Alice Paul wrote it, and it was first introduced into the U.S. Senate and House in 1923. In both chambers, it was introduced by Kansas Republicans. One of them was Susan B. Anthony's nephew. Here's Julie Sook, dean and professor at the City University of New York.
2: So Alice Paul began to draft the Equal Rights Amendment in 1921, and she was really actually so interested in getting it right. She actually enrolled in law school uh, as she was working on drafting the Equal Rights Amendment. And the impetus for the Equal Rights Amendment came after suffrage, after the success of the 19th Amendment being ratified in 1920, because the 19th Amendment was limited in its scope to the right of citizens to vote not being denied or abridged on account of sex. And uh, the idea behind the Equal Rights Amendment was to wipe uh, out all remaining discriminations in the law that distinguished between men and women. And when I say it has a longer history, when it's being introduced, uh, that is, if you look at the hearings, the first hearings on the ERA are actually in 1925 when it's being introduced by the National Women's Party, uh, Mabel Vernon, actually, who is a colleague of Alice Paul's. Uh, she actually talks about how the Equal Rights Amendment has its origins, really, in Susan B. Anthony's participation in debates about the 14th Amendment.
4: The ERA was introduced in every single Congress from 1923 to 1972. Early on, opinion on the ERA was split even among those in the women's movement. Some feared that rather than increase protection for women, it would cause legislators
2: to remove important protections already in place. So in 1921, that's where a lot of the energies of the suffragists are going, focusing on maternal health, focusing on the rights of women workers, and and not just their rights, but their, their actual working conditions, and what are the possibilities in the constrained legal landscape that they occupy for making sure that women workers are protected. And I think that history is very important to understand, because when the ERA fails or really doesn't get off the ground, It's because there are many interests of particularly working class women that are not fully taken into account by the proponents of the ERA.
4: But support grew with the bipartisan representation. From 1944 through 1976, the ERA was on the platform of both major political parties. In 1946, the ERA finally made it to the floor of Congress for a vote. A New York Times headline that year read, Equal rights near, women are told. Turns out that was a tad too optimistic. Despite bipartisan support and the devoted efforts of 33 nationwide women's groups, the 1946 ERA bill was defeated. Still, the ERA continued to have support on both sides of the aisle. Every president from 1945 through the 1970s supported it, including Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter. First ladies, Lady Bird Johnson, Betty Ford, and Rosalind Carter were all vocal advocates of the amendment.
0: I once thought the women's movement belonged more to my daughters than to me, but I have come to know that it belongs to women of all ages.
3: When you think of the Equal Rights Amendment, Think about yourself. Equal legal protection, equal legal opportunities are the basis of our democracy and of our quality of life.
0: My own support of the Equal Rights Amendment has shown what happens when a definition of proper behavior collides with the right of an individual to personal opinion. I do not believe that being First Lady should prevent me from expressing my ideas.
4: Yet despite all the support over the years, decades passed with no amendment. That brings us to the late 1960s and early 1970s, the era of the second wave of feminism.
0: The decision to have a child should not be a matter to be decided by the male dominated legislature. And we restructure society to make equality really possible, then I think the war between the sexes will end. I
3: no longer accept society's
4: judgment that my group is second class, just so she can stay alive. To get in the right frame of mind, it's important to look back at what the state of gender equity was at the time. Here's my mom, Donna, on how her perspective on gender equity broadly, and the ERA specifically, shifted. As you may remember from episode one, she wasn't always an advocate of the amendment.
1: So law school was what did it. I mean, I went to law school, and every class that I took, women were treated differently by the law. You know, in the early 1970s, women couldn't do things like have a credit card without their husband's approval. Women couldn't control their reproductive rights, even things like if you wanted to get your tubes tied or if you wanted to get certain types of birth control, you could not do that without your husband's permission. Let's not even talk about the economic inequalities that existed in in those days. I mean, the law sanctioned discrimination against women. You know, it wasn't just the olden days of the early United States of America where women were property and could not sign contracts, could not have their own bank accounts, all those kind of things. It wasn't that. You know, it was then, it was happening. It was the 1970s. And many of those things still existed in the law. The law sanctioned them. The law allowed them. All over the country,
4: women were organizing. They were fed up and determined to enact change. One such activist is Ellie Smeal. She's currently the president of Feminist Majority and the Feminist Majority Foundation. In 1970, Ellie had just moved to Pittsburgh. She got involved in the local chapter of NOW, the National Organization for Women. They were doing serious work, but the press coverage didn't represent the reality on
3: the ground. They had a whole celebration of women's vote, 50 years And they were marching in Washington and and, in New York, but in Pittsburgh they had this conference, which was wonderful. And I went home and turned on the television to see how they covered it, and it was awful. And I said, you know, we just have to get active. This is just all lies. They made it look so extreme, when in reality it was talking about things that were necessary, important, and very wonderful speakers, and that it was sort of a mockery of the whole thing. Remember in those days we were made fun of? It was sort of like, oh, my God, they can chew gum and and talk. I mean, it, it was like, it was easy to get press, I must say, but a lot of it was ridiculing and not taking us seriously at all.
4: In Pittsburgh, and all over the country, now and similar organizations were suing to try to get equal rights for women workers.
3: We were suing the Pittsburgh press for eliminating want ads that were help wanted" women, help on a men, or I think it was female, male, and on its face, discriminatory, but we ended up having to go from the Human Rights Commission all the way to the Supreme Court, if you can imagine. We win. Five to four, which was a shock to us. I mean, it was so blatant, and we only win five to four. Uh, but we were suing um, a company called G.C. Murphy's, which was like a five and dime. I don't think young people would know what that is, a dollar story type thing. And they had a warehouse, in the, and the women had pick and bend jobs, and the men were supposedly ha- heavy lifting. But the truth of the matter is they had equipment to heavy lift, at forklifts and our people the women were working actually harder but we got paid less and everything was segregated only females here only males there we picketed for a year the GC Murphy's I had small children a lot of us did brought them uh, every Saturday and Pittsburgh's a Union town especially in those days so people would across cross the picket lines mm-hmm. they finally settled we had one of the biggest settlements it's
4: incredible to look back at what these groups were able to accomplish. In many cases, the people behind the suits weren't even lawyers.
3: You know, in our first cases, we didn't have lawyers. You might not believe that. We didn't have any attorneys in Pittsburgh. That Pittsburgh press case was written by people who were political science, psychologists, math, but we were educated. They shouldn't have educated us, but we didn't have lawyers. And we got a lawyer who was an ACLU-type lawyer, to sign it. <laughs> we had written it. No, I mean, we we just didn't have it. You know, we hadn't broken ER. Uh, Title IX just passed in 72. We didn't, we didn't have... Uh, we were not admitted fairly in law schools and medical schools. 3%, I think, of the students were... Uh, law students were female. 8% of the, uh, the medical students. And then they said to us, oh... You know, you you, you all don't represent real women. Real women don't want to be doctors or lawyers. Real women want to marry one.
4: These lawsuits were part of the reason why Ellie and
3: fellow activists were so determined to pass the ERA. One of the reasons that we were so adamant about the ERA is that we were doing all these other things, and we were not always winning, It wasn't easy, and we kept saying we feel like the Pied Piper urging people to sue or to stick up for their rights, but the laws were not as strong as they should be. And so it made those of us who were working on this say we have to have a better chance in court. For those of you who have forgotten, the amendment is pretty simple in its wording. Section 1, Equality of Rights, Under the law... ...shall not be denied or abridged... ...by the United States... ...or by any state...
0: ...on account of sex. Section 2...
3: ...the Congress shall have the power to enforce... ...by
0: appropriate legislation... ...the provisions of this article.
4: Because the feminist movement was frustrated that the Supreme Court had never interpreted the 14th Amendment's equal protection guarantee to apply to discrimination on the basis of sex they made passing the Equal Rights Amendment a top priority. Having women in office helped turn that priority into a reality. Here's Professor Sook again.
2: So I've been spending all my time lately uh, looking at the legislative history of the ERA, not only in the 1920s, but primarily in the 1970s. And I focused on the 10 women who were in Congress when the ERA was debated. For years, the ERA was stuck in committee (laughs) and did not get out of committee. And Martha Griffiths, in 1970, did a discharge petition to force it out of committee and onto the floor. And once it got to the floor, it passed by an overwhelming majority, easily more than two-thirds required in the House. Uh, And that was in 1970, but it didn't pass in the Senate in 1970. So it was reintroduced in the next session. That was in the fall of 1971 and spring of 1972. But it's really in 1970 that the modern ERA, the ERA that 35 states Ratified in the 70s, and that uh, is continued to continuing to be ratified today. So that's the ERA that we are ratifying. It doesn't mean equal protection can't help women; it just hasn't. So it was a political movement uh, in which a new constitutional moment and a new constitutional era was imagined. And it wasn't that they thought that the ERA would, in one fell swoop, get rid of every practice that was wrong. They thought it would get rid of all the old remnants of sex discrimination and that it would encourage legislators, uh, as opposed to judges, uh, to take responsibility. And so the women who were in Congress at this time, not only Martha Griffiths, but Shirley Chisholm and Patsy Mink uh, and Edith Green, they were, at the same time that they're debating the ERA in hearings, the ERA on the floor of the House, they are also actively participating in hearings and voting for laws that work on equality on the ground. Uh, And also, we forget about the fact that there were so many Republican women in Congress during that time, Florence Dwyer, Margaret Heckler, who supported the Equal Rights Amendment and drew attention to women's disadvantage in the context of access to educational opportunity, access to professions like the legal profession, And so there was a bipartisan moment when the 1970s ERA was sent to the states for ratification.
4: Pioneering politician Shirley Chisholm was the first Black woman to ever serve in Congress, run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, and the first woman to ever appear in a presidential debate. Representative Chisholm gave a pro-ERA speech in Congress in 1970.
2: The time is clearly now to put this house on record for the fullest expression of that equality of opportunity which our founding fathers professed. They professed it, but they did not assure it to their daughters as they tried to do for their sons. The constitution they wrote was designed to protect the rights of white male citizens. As there were no black founding fathers, there were no founding mothers. A great pity on both counts. It is not too late to complete the work they left undone.
4: The ERA was finally passed by the House of Representatives on October 12, 1971 by a vote of 354 to 23, then by the Senate on March 22, 1972 by 84 to eight. The proposing clause of the resolution gave it until March 22, 1979 to gain the approval of three quarters of the 50 state legislatures, or 38 states. It's important to note that this deadline was not in the text of the amendment itself. We'll come back to that in future episodes. None of the first 17 amendments to the US Constitution ever had a deadline, nor did the 19th, granting women suffrage. When the amendment passed in Congress, many of the women of the movement celebrated, but the ERA's author, the one and only Alice Paul, was nowhere to be found. We'll talk about where she was right after this break. Everyone wants their home to look and feel great. Snow makes it incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you live. Snow has home goods that are practical and striking to look at. They also have a beautiful, immersive showroom called The White Space, located in Union Square in New York City, where we'll be holding an event later this month. If you're in NYC, we'd love to have you join us at The White Space on February 26th at 7 p.m. for a postcard writing party. The ERA is on the cusp of finally being added to the Constitution, but to make that a reality, we have to put continuous pressure on legislators. Join Wonder Media Network and Equality Now in writing postcards to members of Congress, urging them to challenge the DOJ and eliminate the deadline on the amendment. RSVP please email OrdinaryEquality at WondermediaNetwork.com You can also DM us on Twitter
3: at ord equality.
4: Alice Paul lived in the National Women's Party headquarters in Washington D.C. Ellie Smeal was there the day the ERA passed
3: Yes I was at now, and I was there a group of us came down from Pittsburgh. We came down for the vote, and so we were in the galleries when it passed. Oh, we were just so excited, it wasn't funny. This is it, we're done with it. We, we got it out of the House and the Senate after all these years. Now, a lot of us had just put a couple years in, but some of the older people had been doing it quite a long time. And so we ran over to the National Women's Building, which is close uh, to Congress, and thinking there'd be a big party and a celebration, and all of us were there, and we were so excited. And Alice Paul, the author, wasn't there. We said, where could she be? I mean, I mean, she, you know, and one of us, a woman named Phyllis Weatherby goes back and finds her sitting at the Susan B. Anthony desk, which was in the building, I think it still is, crying. And so we thought, oh my God, she's so happy, she's crying. And she wasn't happy. She felt that by uh, who was the chief sponsor in the Senate, and Martha Grossis in the House, had taken a compromise that will lead to its defeat. And we said, oh, no, no, we're going to make it. You know, we are trying to cheer her up. And she said, you no, know, you don't understand. Congress put in the preamble a time limit. And she felt that was really bad. And we said, well, why? I mean, you know, it's not... And she said, because it makes people think we have a lot of time. And most amendments pass within a few months. And she said it's going to make people delay and stall. And she felt that Sam Irwin, who was a senator from North Carolina, had tricked everybody by saying, well, you have plenty of time. The one thing that is a blessing, though, it is in the preamble. And therefore, it doesn't count because the states did not vote on it.
4: Twenty-two states ratified the ERA right away in 1972. Hawaii actually ratified it the same day it passed in the Senate. In 1973, eight more states followed suit, and in 1974, three more signed on. North Dakota approved it in 1975 and Indiana in 1977 bringing the total to 35 of the 38 needed. Though ratification slowed later in the decade, support was always high. On April 9, 1975, Gallup released a poll. 58% of the respondents said they favored the constitutional amendment, which would permanently and explicitly ban all forms of sex discrimination. Just 24% were opposed, and 18% had no opinion. At the time, Men were actually more supportive than women. 63% of men supported it versus 54% of women. Though clear majorities of both groups favored it. But the fight was far from over. Even with majority support, there was still serious opposition. Some of that came from religious communities. In case you missed episode one, that's how I was first introduced to the ERA. I grew up in the Mormon Church And as a kid, I learned about the amendment through the story of one woman, Sonia Johnson.
0: You know, I loved my husband. I had four gorgeous children. I had a doctorate, I taught at universities. And so, you know, whatever the Equal Rights Amendment was, I, I clearly didn't need it. It just didn't interest me at all, you know?
4: That's Sonia. She and her husband had moved all around the world before settling down in Virginia. She started playing the organ at her local Mormon church. It was there that she had the epiphany you heard about at the top of the show.
0: And um, I started playing the organ there about as soon as I got there because they needed somebody and so here I was happy to do that. And then they began to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment in church and that kind of distressed me because, well, they were doing it in the sacrament meeting, which, as you know, is supposed to be the most sacred of all the meetings, and except the temple. And, and they were telling us that, that God wanted us to uh, organize and fight it. And I thought, just a minute, how can God be against something called the Equal Rights Amendment? I mean, what kind of a God is that? Or what kind of a church is this? Where... And so it wasn't too long that I'd been there when they, because a lot of us were requesting this, because there were a lot of, well, you know, Mormons are pretty well-educated, and these people had high-paying high jobs and had, uh, were a very well-educated bunch, actually. And um, we all asked for somebody to come and talk to us about why the church was opposing the Equal Rights Amendment. And what was it?
4: A stake president came to speak to a group of about 40 members of Sonia's church. A stake president is sort of like a bishop in other religious denominations in terms of stature. He, and it always is a he, is a regional leader.
0: And sitting next to me were our friends. Here was Rick, my husband. Here was... Hazel and Ron, all of them with advanced degrees doing advanced stuff in the government, except me and and Rick was at the university. Anyway, there we all were, and here came this guy, and he stood up in front of us, and he said, you know, I was on my way here, and, and I realized I didn't know anything about this subject. So I stopped at a seven eleven and there oh this is like a miracle there was um coronet magazine that said E-R-A. oh good now i could i so i I could bone up quickly and find out. well you know coronet you you wouldn't even you wouldn't even remember it it was a substandard reader's digest it was just about as as after the fourth grade, you could read that easily. And, and that's about who read it, people that could read it easily. and So he said, so now I, I know what it's all about. And he started talking about it. And you know, it wasn't just a coronet. It wasn't just that he hadn't prepared. It was just like it was time for me to wake up. And so I don't even know what he said. I'm sure it was stupid as all get out uh, of it. I had, I guess, the first... I've I've had two epiphanies in my life, many, many, many years apart. This was the first one I'd ever had. All of a sudden, I knew exactly what was going on.
4: Sonia had a major panic attack, left the room, and didn't calm down until she and her husband got back into their car.
0: So I got out of the car, and um, my husband was opening the door for me. And I said, you know, Rick, I'm a feminist. In fact, I'm a radical feminist, because I'm an English teacher, you know? I know that radical means at the roots. And I knew that at the roots of my soul, I'd been changed that night, that I would never be the same. I could never return. And that was the beginning of a year and a half, I guess you'd call it
4: battle, with the general authorities. Sonia wasn't alone. She joined with other women who were feeling similarly inspired to take action, and she created a group called Mormons for the ERA. Her group protested and worked alongside women, including Ellie Smeal and groups like NOW. Sonia even testified in Congress about the importance of the amendment as a Mormon in favor of extending the ratification deadline.
0: the National Organization for Women had been asked to provide two or three people to give t- women to give testimony for the Equal Rights Amendment. Knowing that Orrin Hatch was on that committee of human- for human rights or whatever it was, something that he was certainly not for, <laughs> they chose me to do that, one of them to do that. And I read my paper. So when it was over, um, Orrin had tried to make me look foolish, of course. That's one of their big ways of getting us. Um, also, I uh, remember one thing he said was, Why do you think you're right when so many of what's most of the people don't want the Equal Rights Amendment? And I said, Well, in the first place, that's not correct. In every state, in every unratified state, the large majority are pro-ERA. And I said, and besides, what do numbers matter? I said, you belong to a church that says it's the only true church in the world and has not got very many members in comparison with the Catholic Church or all the Protestants put together. It's a small church still. So, you know, numbers don't mean that something is true or not true. Isn't
4: that correct? Oh, he was, he couldn't answer that one. Sonia marched, fasted, protested, and left behind the life she knew in order to fight for what she believed in. She was excommunicated from the church and her marriage ended. She was one of many women who gave their all to the cause. And the movement got so close. If just eight state senators had switched their votes, the ERA would have become part of the Constitution on March 1st, 1977, two years before the original deadline. But while the vastly popular women's movement kept pushing things forward, the ERA's opponents similarly gathered steam.
0: It's a very great pleasure to be invited to visit with you for a while this afternoon. And I would like also to thank my husband, Fred, for letting me come. (laughs) I love to
4: say that because it irritates the women's livers more than anything I say. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about the woman who became the face of the opposition, Phyllis Schlafly.
0: Actually, I can't complain about my husband ever interfering with my civil liberties. Every time we have an argument, he always assures me of my
4: constitutional right to remain silent. (laughs) As we look back on the history of the ERA, we're also experiencing history in the making. This week, February thirteenth, 2020, the US House of Representatives will vote on the ERA for the first time since 1978 and they will eliminate the deadline from the 1970s. We'll keep you posted on what's going on in Congress and the modern progress to get it ratified. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls all around the world. To learn more about what you can do to support the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org backslash E-R-A. To follow along with our journey, find us on Twitter at OrdEquality, O-R-D Equality. If you like our show, please subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. Swing Left is a grassroots organization that gives people effective ways to make a difference in our elections. They recently launched a great new podcast called How We Win. It's not the news, but what you can do about it. Every Wednesday on How We Win, co-hosts Steve Pearson and Mariah Craven talk to diverse guests like Senator Chris Murphy, former president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, Christine Pelosi, and more. Each episode of How We Win gives you the tools you need to make the biggest impact on these crucial elections, no matter where you live. The best anecdote for anxiety is action, 2020 is here, and the time to get involved is now. Get your weekly dose of hope. Subscribe now to Swing Left, How We Win on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to swingleft.org podcast.